This is Nicole Hannah-Jones, creator of the 1619 Project from the New York Times Magazine. The project makes a case that you don't often hear in history textbooks, that slavery was foundational to America. So it wasn't surprising that we ignited a fierce debate among historians about these issues. But that's the power of the New York Times, to spark an important dialogue with bold, rigorous reporting that forces us to examine our assumptions. To learn more, go to nytimes.com slash worth it. Getting eight hours of sleep every night? Check. Eat a quality, plant-based diet? Check. Exercise four or more times a week? Check. Basically, you're doing everything right to ensure that you lead a long life. So isn't it time that you were financially rewarded for your commitment to a healthy lifestyle? Q Health IQ. Health IQ uses science and data to secure lower rates for people like you on their life insurance. To see if you qualify, go to healthiq.com slash naked scientist to take the proprietary Health IQ quiz. Depending upon your score, as well as other related qualifying factors, you can save up to 41% on your life insurance premiums compared with other providers. Again, that's healthiq.com slash naked scientist to let them know we sent you and start the process with the Health IQ quiz. There's no commitment and you'll learn even more about potential opportunities to be rewarded for your commitment to living healthily. That's healthiq.com slash naked scientists. Hello, welcome to The Naked Scientists with me, Chris Smith, and also with Simon Bishop. Hello, Simon. Hello. And this week, we're discussing how the body assembles itself, turning from an egg into an adult. How on earth does that happen? Plus, in the news, does playing an instrument make you more intelligent? And we see what findings Mars Curiosity rover has sent back from the red planet. And on the subject of exploration, we want you to explore inside your cells. Can you tell us, for our teaser for this week, if I took the DNA out of one of your cells and stretched it out into a long line, how long would it be? If you'd like to get in touch with The Naked Scientist, the email address is chris at thenakedscientist.com. You can also tweet at Naked Scientists, or you can find us on our Facebook page, which is at facebook.com slash the Naked Scientists. The Naked Scientists podcast is powered by ukfast.co.uk. Now, don't be alarmed. We haven't put you on hold although that music is used at pretty much every hospital I have to phone up in the course of my job, and I must say it doesn't hold quite the same charm for me it once did. But it serves an important purpose, which is the whole question of does playing or engaging with classical music make you more intelligent? Well, someone who's been trying to find out the answer to that question is Harvard's Sam Mayer. Hello, Sam. Hi, Chris. Thanks for having me on the show. That's all right. So first of all, where did this whole idea about... uh, Mozart or learning to play musical instruments, learning to engage with classical music might make you more intelligent. What's the background or basis to that? Well, about 20 years ago, there was a paper published in the journal Nature that uh, showed that listening to some Mozart music, a piano sonata, improved adults' performance on an intelligence test. So it seemed that maybe listening to music might improve your cognitive skills. This turned out to actually not be the case. It turned out that the Mozart music just actually made people a little bit happier, a little bit more relaxed, and that was what was causing them to do better on their tests. 
But this paper made quite a bit of press. Everyone sort of became very incensed with the idea of a possible Mozart effect, even though that effect ended up being totally false. With all this press came the possible idea that maybe sending your child to music lessons to play the piano or the violin or or to sing in the choir um, might also be connected with intelligence. Um, So it goes back about 20 years. So what was the outstanding question then that you were seeking to answer here? Well, it turns out that the question of whether, uh, you know, children who attend music lessons um, have some sort of intelligence advantages or uh, higher grades is one that actually hasn't been tested very much um, in the academic press. So our question is simply, um, if you give children a particular type of music training, whether it's instrumental lessons or uh, classroom music um, in school or or the type of training that we use, which was parent-child music enrichment um, in young children, in preschoolers, um, if they get this type of training, do they show advantages on the cognitive assessments above the level of their peers who might have had a different type of class, like an arts class, or maybe no classes at all? I suppose that gets around the big question here, which is do people end up playing a musical instrument because they're academically more able in the first place, rather than actually playing the instrument and playing the music makes them better? So that's a very, very important question. It's a very widely held belief that music and intelligence are linked, that you know children who do music are better at math. And there's a really interesting problem here in the cognitive science and education literature, which is the difference between correlation and causation. So a lot of studies have shown that if you take a group of musicians and you compare them to a group of non-musicians, the two groups differ in a lot of ways not just the most obvious way, which is that the musicians are better at music. Um, They also often find that the musicians have higher cognitive skills, they might have done better in school, but it would be a very big mistake to conclude from that type of study that music makes children smarter. That's a false conclusion, because it could be that there's something else going on in the background that, that is also associated with musicianship. It could be that, you know, growing up to play music uh, is also, you know, associated with growing up in a wealthy neighborhood. You know, you have to be able to afford music lessons, and people who grow up in wealthy neighborhoods also tend to do better in school because they have better teachers and better classrooms and, and that type of thing. So what we need to do is what's called a randomized experiment. Um, and that's what we did and what a couple of other studies have done in the past. Tell us about the, the structure of that experiment, just very briefly. So the way a randomized experiment works is you take a group of children and you randomly assign them to get something, uh, the treatment, so here music lessons, or something else, so no, no music lessons, either an arts class or a no class at all. And after a period of time, when the classes are happening, you test them and see who does better. So you recruited how many kids and what did you assess? So we uh, did two randomized experiments. In the first study, we had 29 children, and in the second study, we had 45 children. Across the two experiments, children either received a parent-child music enrichment class. These were four-year-old children, preschoolers. Um, They either got that parent-child music class or a parent-child visual arts class or no classes at all. And after six weeks of classes, so a short training period, we tested them in four different areas of cognition, their linguistic development, their early mathematical development, and in two types of spatial reasoning. What did you find? Our findings were a bit surprising, um, especially for those who sort of have this ingrained belief that music might make children smarter. Taking the results of the two experiments together, we find no evidence that the music-trained children had any advantage on any of the cognitive assessments that we gave. Importantly, this does not mean that we proved that music doesn't make children smarter. It could be that using different types of music training might show that, that effect. It could be that using longer training might show that effect. 
But the sort of important thing I think about our paper is that in addition to running these two experiments, we also took a very critical look at the previous literature, and we found that only five other studies have done exactly this. Only five studies have used a randomized experiment, and when we look at those studies together, the evidence is not so good for Music Makes Children Smarter. Could you not argue it comes down to what you define as intelligence? Because one person might say, well, actually, giving those children an insight into music and an appreciation for and an ability in the musical arena means they're more likely to go on to pursue musical instruments and be more creative later in life. You've only looked at a very short period of time. Absolutely. So I think when people say things like music makes children smarter, they're referring to a very specific uh, thing, which is intelligence quotient, so IQ. We didn't even measure IQ in our study. We used specific measures of cognition, their linguistic development, their mathematical development. I think there's no question that music lessons improve children's musical skills. I think there, there are obvious relations to children's creativity, and um, there's, there's promise that's been shown in some studies uh, that music lessons might be related to social development in some ways. So yes, it's absolutely important to define what smarter means in that context. Musically smarter, I think, is an obvious outcome of these lessons. Sam, we must leave it there, but thank you very much. Meanwhile, I will continue with my daughter's violin lessons. She seems to enjoy them very much. That's Sam Mayer from Harvard University. Uh, He published that work this week in the journal PLOS One, and it was supported by the Dana Foundation in America. Simon. Now, Chris, I have a question for you. Have you got your Christmas dinner sorted? Do you know what you're going to be having? I've already had one or two Christmas dinners, actually. Well, when you have your actual Christmas dinner, spare a thought for what's going on to your insides. Now, there's growing concern, of course, that Western diets, which tend to be high in fat, high in sugar, high in protein, are actually contributing to chronic illnesses, things like obesity and inflammatory bowel disease. Um, And there's a prevailing theory that this is coming about because of a change to the what's called the microbiome. That's the bacteria inside your gut, the different types of bacteria and the numbers of those bacteria. What was not known is how sensitive the microbiome is to diet. So I've come across a new study here by Peter Turnbow over in Harvard. And he took a number of volunteers of different dietary backgrounds, including a lifelong vegetarian. And he put them on a five-day diet of exclusively plant-based materials or animal-based products, things like cheese, meat and eggs. And then he looked at the composition of their microbiome over the course of that experiment. He found that after just one day of being on a diet, the microbiome had significantly changed, especially if they were on an animal product-based diet. Can you just define what you mean by changed? How had the bugs changed? Well... In terms of the population structure, it had changed. What they found, particularly on the animal-based diet, was that the number of bacteria that are bile-resistant had increased. Now, bile is the liquid that's released from the gallbladder in response to more fat in the diet. And what's notable is that of these bile-resistant bacteria, one called Bilophila wadsworthia, has previously been linked to inflammatory bowel disease. So here we have a direct link between diet and the population of a disease-causing bacteria in the gut. And the thinking is that by changing the diet, you might be able to see an improvement in health, perhaps even within one day. Because we've known for a long time that certain diseases 
are associated with certain diets. We also know, since you've raised the point about inflammatory bowel disease, that putting people on certain diets can make their inflammatory bowel disease better. If you put people with Crohn's disease on astronaut food, this so-called elemental diet where the food is extremely boring to eat, yet nonetheless contains just the right mixture of nutrients to keep a person healthy, their Crohn's disease gets better. So that would sort of sit with this argument, wouldn't it, that it may be that there are subtle effects on the bacteria and it's the bacteria that are affecting the health, the gut. It would, absolutely. And they they also found, they looked at the genes that these bacteria were expressing as well, and they actually found changes in what the bacteria were actually doing in response to all of this food. They found that on the animal product-based diet, there was an increase in the transcription, that's the activation of genes involved in vitamin synthesis, and also the breakdown of carcinogens, cancer-causing chemicals. So, There's implications there for improvements in health in all sorts of ways. I think it's amazing the technology that we now have to ask these sorts of questions because to do this sort of experiment 10 years ago would have been more than you could ever dream of because you're basically using DNA technology and sequencing the genetics of all of these different bacteria. Now it is possible and we can begin to see these sorts of insights, things we always suspected might be happening, but now we can can actually say they really are. Thank you, Simon. NASA's Curiosity rover landed on Mars in August 2012, just last year. It's been there for the past 15 months exploring a region of Mars called the Gale Crater. And this week, the team who are running the rover reported on what they found so far. So we thought you'd appreciate an update. And here is your quick fire science about our planetary next-door neighbour with Dominic Ford and with Hannah Critchlow. Today, Mars is a barren and cratered world where temperatures commonly dip well below minus 100 degrees centigrade, cold enough for even carbon dioxide to form frost. To the unaided eye looking up at the night sky, Mars is strikingly red. This is because the Martian soil is littered with fine particles of iron oxide, also called rust. Low temperatures are not the only reason why Mars would be a harsh place to live. Its atmosphere is 100 times thinner than the Earth's and is composed mainly of carbon dioxide rather than breathable oxygen. What fascinates space scientists, though, is that ancient channels are carved into the Martian surface, which look like dried-up riverbeds. Today, the pressure of Mars's surface is too low for liquid water to exist. So the presence of channels imply that Mars's climate was radically different in the past, with a much thicker atmosphere. One of the Curiosity rover's aims is to work out how this change of climate happened. If there was once much more carbon dioxide gas in Mars's atmosphere, it's unclear where that carbon could have gone. The most likely answer is that it turned into carbon-rich limestone. Yet a big mystery is why very little limestone has ever been found on Mars. The Curiosity rover has also been measuring radiation on Mars's surface. Without a thick atmosphere to protect it, Mars's surface is blasted by the full brunt of radiation produced by the sun. In fact, measurements from Curiosity's radiation sensors suggest that even the hardiest life forms on Earth could not withstand the irradiation the Martian soil receives. One of the next questions for Curiosity is whether microbial life might have been able to thrive on Mars in the distant past, even if not today. Space scientists are searching the Martian soil for large carbon-based molecules, but are so complex that only ancient life forms could have assembled them. 
If curiosity doesn't find any by 2018, the quest will then be taken up by the European ExoMars rover, which will arrive carrying the next generation of even more sensitive instruments. Dominic Ford and Hannah Critchlow there. And you can get hold of all of our quickfire science episodes as their own podcasts from our website at thenakedscientist.com slash quickfirescience. This is The Naked Scientist with Simon Bishop and also with me, Chris Smith. We've heard from Mark, who's emailed in, and he said, I have no idea about your DNA teaser this week. Quick reminder, we're asking you, because we're talking later in the programme about genetics, if you were to take it out from an individual cell in your body and string it all out in a long line, how long would the DNA be in the average cell? Answer in metres, please. Uh, Mark says, not sure about that, but uh, he's interested in the classical music item, says he likes to listen to classical music when he's in a foul mood. Not sure it makes him more intelligent or, or gives him any street cred, but it does make him feel a bit more relaxed. If you'd like to get in touch, you can email chris at thenakedscientist.com or you can tweet at Naked Scientists. Working with intensive care doctors, engineers at Oxford University have developed a new way to improve the way that patients are monitored in hospital and to spot much sooner when someone is deteriorating so that their care can be intensified. At the same time, the system, which uses an iPad to log, analyse and share patient vital signs with key healthcare workers, can also tell when patients are improving faster than average so that they can be discharged more quickly, saving money. James Harrison went to see the electronic early warning system, as it's known, in action. Hello there, I'm just going to check your blood pressure. and uh, It's going to go around your ham. It's going to squeeze you tight, but only for a few seconds. Since 2011, the vital signs of thousands of patients from Oxford and Banbury are now routinely recorded using paper-based track and trigger charts, which help identify when medical care needs to be escalated. These charts have already improved patient outcomes as problems are spotted more quickly. But the paper-based system is by no means perfect. And so a research team led by Professor Lionel Tarasenko at the University of Oxford's Institute of Biomedical Engineering has come up with an electronic version of the track and trigger system. So we've developed a system based around barcode scanners because all patients now have barcodes for identification. In about three or four seconds, the patient is scanned, the nurse is scanned, and she can do the observations. Having barcoded the patient and having barcoded her own identification, she can use this iPad mounted on trolley right next to where the blood pressure monitors and the heart rate monitors and so on are positioned to enter this information. What she will do to identify how poorly the, the patient might be is to take five or six or sometimes seven of these observations and our computer system produces a score of how abnormal the observation is for a typical adult patient, and you build up the score, and if the score, which is a score of abnormality, is above a certain threshold, then there's an alert and there's an escalation of care. With the prototypes in place, the team discovered that after only two or three patient observations, nurses were picking up scores high enough to trigger an alert, meaning that they weren't having to waste vital time taking other measurements. As well as saving time by the bedside, the system was also engineered to feed information into the patient's electronic record, giving doctors ready access to essential information which could lead to earlier interventions, which in some cases could be the difference between life and death. There are also cost savings associated with electronic track and trigger, 
If a patient could be helped back to health more quickly, aided by more accurate information, the increasingly valuable hospital bed can be freed up for somebody else. If a patient is really progressing well and faster than the average patient with that condition or after that operation is, then there's absolutely no reason they shouldn't be discharged early. The most expensive part of healthcare is a hospital bed. Professor Tarasenko and his fellow researchers are hopeful that within 10 years, the majority of acute hospitals will have a system like this on their wards, an achievement that could prove revolutionary in the way medical teams monitor and record the vital signs of seriously ill patients. James Harrison reporting on the new early warning electronic system that's been pioneered in Oxford with support from the Engineering and Physical Sciences Research Council, the EPSRC. Simon. Now, here's another story that's caught my eye this week, and it's on agriculture. One of the challenges of farming, crop farming in particular, is knowing how much water you're going to need to be successful. That's particularly relevant if you're farming in dry places. But answering that question is actually quite difficult and you need to know a lot about the micrometeorological data, that's the temperature and the wind movements and conditions of the soil and the air that you're trying to grow in. And you need to put that together with techniques that validate all of that data, analyse it statistically, you need packages to, to analyse that. And to do all of that, you need formal training, which isn't necessarily accessible by farmers. So I've come across a paper this week, although paper might be the wrong word for it, but it's from the group led by Richard Snyder in the University of California. And it's published in the Journal of Visualised Experiments, which means that it's not actually a paper, it's a video. And it's a how-to guide, almost, of how to set up some technology that can do all of this for you. So you have a tower that's powered by solar panels, and on this tower you have instruments to record temperature, wind speed. You have a thing called an anemometer, which you may be familiar with is sort of a horizontal windmill that has cups that are pushed around by the wind and uh, record wind speed. This actually has a Doctor Who-style sonic anemometer. So there's no moving parts and it uses ultrasonic sound waves to work out the wind speed. And it puts all of this information together to measure what's called evapotranspiration. That's the loss of water from a plant and from the soil that that plant is in. And it brings this all together and gives a simple readout for farmers to look at and they can make decisions about the ecology of the landscape that they're trying to grow in and make decisions to improve their yield or keep their yield as good as it is but invest less and waste less water. Does it work? Well, they're currently testing this all out and they're developing it into a product that can be taken around the world. They're currently trialling it in California on things like corn and rice and, and vegetables and in vineyards. And they're hoping to take it to Chile as well. And they have a startup company that's trying to put this all together into a marketable product that's affordable so that you, as a farmer in a difficult landscape, can work out how to be the best at growing your crops. That you and, and use what's going to become in the future, inevitably a very precious commodity. Absolutely. A fantastic piece of research. Thank you very much, Simon. To finish our news this week, a new breakthrough in understanding how diseases and potentially pandemics spread around the world. Now, if we wind the clock back 100 years or so, it's pretty easy for people to model or work out how diseases must have spread because they went with people and people went either on foot or horseback or if they were very lucky they might have had a car. But that meant that there was a limit to how fast people could move and therefore diseases tended to follow the geography. But nowadays there's a big fly in this ointment which is air travel because you've got a situation where a city like London is connected to potentially 4,000 cities 
all over the world, which is the number of airports that there are. And there are about 10 million people moving around the world on air travel every single day. And if I ask you, Simon, just as a quick aside, how many people do you think are airborne right now somewhere around the planet? What do you say the answer is? Oh, millions, potentially. It's about a million. Yeah, it's a very high number if you just froze time. And with that level of population flux, we're in a situation where diseases can literally be on the other side of the world in under a day. So our traditional way of studying how diseases move around and spread doesn't work and it makes it very hard to predict where they're coming from, where they might go or how to mitigate or prevent that spread happening. So now we've got a new paper out, since Science This Week, by Dirk Brockman, who's from Humboldt University in Berlin, and also his colleague, also called Dirk, Dirk Helbing, who's at uh, Zurich in uh, Switzerland. And what they've done is to say, we need to look at this a new way. And they've come up with something which is called effective distance, DF. And what they've done is to say, well, if we look at an airport and ask how many other airports is this connected to and where, you can use the connectivity of the airports to work out what the likelihood is of something coming out of one airport and ending up in another. Because effectively, there's a lot more traffic going between London and, say, Los Angeles than there is between London and Aberdeen. And therefore, the geography says that something should spread to Aberdeen faster, but the air travel says it should be in Los Angeles a lot faster. And so they've drawn up this new way of predicting how things will spread. And effectively what you do is you put an airport in the middle of a piece of paper and then you draw concentric rings outwards from that airport and you put the airports that are closest with the most traffic density or connections uh, concentrically arranged. And if you then start an outbreak in, in your central airport, you can see how it ripples out to all these connected areas like ripples on the surface of a pond when you drop in a pebble. And they've tested their theory by taking the data we have for swine flu in 2009 and SARS in 2003, and they've shown very convincingly, in fact, if you look at the graph, it's a straight line fit on their graph, very convincingly they can predict using this DF, this effective distance linkage, how things will spread around the world when they start in certain places. So not only now are we in a position to see how diseases might spread, we're in a position to ask how we might be able to stop them. Chris, thanks very much. And as always, you can find more information, including the references for all the papers that we've just discussed, on our website at thenakedscientist.com forward slash news. You're listening to The Naked Scientist with Chris Smith and me, Simon Bishop. On to our main topic now for the week. We're talking about building bodies, specifically how you develop into the right shape. And we're going to begin at the smallest scale of the body, the shape of an individual cell. I went to visit Helen Matthews at University College London, who works on the genetics of cell shape, including a gene called ECT2, and what happens when the control of cell shape goes awry. In the human body, cells are all kinds of different shapes, and it reflects the specialist nature of different types of cells. So you can imagine that, for example, a neuron that has to carry an electrical signal from your foot all the way to your spine has to be very long and thin, whereas another type of cell, like a red blood cell, is uh, small and round because it's perfectly suited to carrying oxygen. And what's controlling the shape of the cell? So cells are actually very good at controlling their own shape and they do this using specialised proteins which are called the cytoskeleton which is like a scaffolding inside the cell which gives it its specific shape. What aspect of shape are you looking at? So I'm studying how cell shape actually changes during cancer. 
A lot of cells are in the body are in epithelia, which are these very tightly controlled layers of square-shaped cells. And what you nearly always find in cancer is that the cells lose this nice regular shape and become kind of all, all kinds of different shapes. And this helps the cancer cells do many different things, for example, to spread through the body by uh, invading other tissues. They become very long and thin and invasive structures rather than keeping their nice regulated square shape. One of the other things that I'm studying in particular about cancer cells is how they also change shape when they divide. So what does happen to cell shape during division? So when cells divide, they lose their square shape and they become spherical. We think that this is really important to help cells divide accurately into... It's much easier to segment a sphere into two equal parts than an odd-shaped or an uneven-shaped cell. And I presume that becoming spherical makes the cell bigger and and actually allows it to take up the space around it and that that would be an advantage when you're trying to grow a tumour. Yeah, exactly. So we think that actually this is something that happens normally in all cell types when they divide, but actually that cancer cells are able to exploit this and swell up even more so that they're able to divide efficiently in a tumour. How are you looking into the role of shape in cancer? I spend a lot of time looking down the microscope at cells dividing and looking at the shape changes that happen to them. And I've got a video here where you can see the cell rounding up when it divides. Oh, wow. So I'm looking at a single cell side on and this cell suddenly lifts up and it becomes completely spherical. And in the middle of this cell, I'm assuming this is the genetic material inside the cell, and it's, it's dividing as the sphere divides into two. So it's quite a dramatic shape change from a flat cell to a spherical cell and then back down into two flat cells. Yeah, exactly. And the cell essentially goes from being the shape of a, a fried egg to a tennis ball, and it increases in height a lot. So you see that the cell's very flat, and then it really increases its height. Now, I suppose in a tumour it wouldn't be flat on a slide in a microscope. How does this work inside a tumour? We believe that actually in a tumour a cell would swell up to become spherical in the same way, but this would allow it to have space to be able to divide in two. So that's what you're showing me here. And this this looks a bit like a cell sandwich. We've got a cell on a flat surface. We've got almost like a gel on top. What's going on here? So what they did was they put a cell in a really small space. They squashed it under a gel. And if you use a a really soft gel, then the cell's able to round up and divide normally. But if you use a really hard gel, then uh, the cell is no longer able to generate enough force to round up. And you get these cells dividing when they're still flat. And in cancer cells, what they found is that actually this is disastrous and the cell really fails division and is unable to divide properly unless it's able to do this cell shape change. And how are you looking at what underlies this genetically? So I really want to find out which genes are involved in this shape change that happens when cells divide. To do this, I use a method called an RNAi screen where what we do is we systematically knock down different genes, turn them off to see which have an effect on cell shape during division. Did you have in mind which genes to target in the first place? Yes, because obviously there's a great many genes in the human genome and it would be a a big undertaking to knock them all down. I guess that would take quite a long time. Exactly, and a lot of money. So, <laughs> so we, uh, we specifically chose genes that we already knew are activated when cells divide because we thought that if they are active then they could be good candidates to be involved in uh, changing the cell shape. And what did you find? We've identified one gene that really has a strong effect on cell shape in division. Um, it's a gene called X2. It's a molecular switch, so it's actually a master switch within the cell that controls the cell cytoskeleton. It's involved in building up the scaffolding that gives the cells their shape. This has a very profound effect on cell shape because if you remove X2 from the cell, they no longer round up and they stay completely flat when they divide. 
So what's the difference between a cancer cell and a non-cancer cell? So that's what actually we're really trying to find out now. Why is it that cancer cells behave differently in these shape changes at division compared to non-cancer cells? And to do this, we're taking non-cancer normal human cells and uh, activating genes that are frequently activated in cancer. So almost making a a non-cancer cell pretend that it's cancer? Exactly. We're in fact transforming it into a cancer cell. Then we're studying what happens to the cytoskeleton and to the shape of the cell when it divides. And what happens? I don't know yet. This is is what I'm studying at the moment. (laughs) Helen Matthews from University College London studying the control of cell shape in cancer. Her work is what is called fundamental or basic science, working out the processes that control how a cell works. And now armed with this knowledge, future researchers will know where to target for possible cancer treatments. Thank you, Simon. We're talking about genetics and cells this week and how cells work and how they assemble themselves into more complicated things that can include whole organisms or organs. And uh, with us now is uh, Richard Adams, who's a researcher at Cambridge University, and he effectively looks at how life turns from individual cells into complicated tissues. Hello, Richard. Hello. Let's start really simple, the egg. So basically an egg gets fertilised by a sperm. It's one cell and it turns into, over the course of 40 weeks, in a human at least, something with maybe 100 trillion cells in it, huge number, and they're all in the right place. It's an amazing logistical problem. So how does that happen? In animal development, it's done by dividing and conquering the problem. You begin to make big decisions during development first, and then you make more and more specialised decisions. So development begins by dividing that first fertilised cell into many, many cells. And these cells to the outside observer look very similar to each other. There's no particular structure to the embryo. Just a ball of cells. Just a, a ball of cells. But of course, we're clearly much more complicated than that, so the embryo must transform itself. And that takes place in a remarkable morphogenetic process, which means a change in shape of this ball of cells, and the process is called gastrulation. It literally means the formation of a stomach. And what the embryo is doing is changing itself from a single population of cells into three concentric tubes of cells. The innermost tube is going to form the gut and associated organs. The intermediate layer of cells is going to form connective tissue and muscle and and the structural components of the body. And the outermost layer of the tissue is going to form our skin and our central nervous system, our brain and our spinal cord. How do those cells know who they are? So if you go from this ball of cells where one cell just divides and makes two and then two become four and so on, How do they know, right, I'm going to become that inner tube that's going to become the gut and I'm going to become the tube around that that's my muscles and I'm going to become the outer layer that's going to be the skin? How do the cells get addressed? Remarkably, very early in development, through those first divisions, which might build an embryo that has maybe 10,000 cells, many of those cells don't yet know what they're going to become. But they're going to be organized and influenced by a a signaling center, a a small population of cells that are going to send out small diffusive signaling molecules that are going to induce the cells to take on the identities of endoderm or mesoderm. 
And these are these different layers in the, the and tubes. These are the different layers. Initially, these cells are sitting in concentric rings around the, the signaling center, and they must physically transform themselves into a structure that is physically a, a concentric series of rings. So the whole embryo must transform itself physically from one shape into a new shape, which is, is now uh, an endoderm surrounded by mesoderm, surrounded by ectoderm. So when the cells are making these decisions as to what to become under the influence of these signals coming out of, of other cells that say, right, you, Richard, you're going to become a gut or, or so on, does that irreversibly influence what genes are turned on, how the DNA is controlling those cells then? At that point, yes, the the first irreversible decisions are made. And now the repertoire of decisions that that cell is, is able to take is restricted. And then subsequent decisions will define which part of the gut, for instance, that cell would form and, and, and which subtype of cell its progeny would be able to produce within the gut itself. How do the cells move around in the embryo so that the ones that should be in the middle of making this gut tube are there and the ones that are around the outside to make the skin are in the right place as well? The movements are very varied and, and, and interesting. Some are, just as Helen just described, involving the cytoskeleton that change the shapes of cells and the cells are able to move on each other. But within the embryo, many cells are stuck together in tissues and these populations of cells are able to transform themselves in much more sophisticated ways. So, for instance, they can will pull themselves in one direction, which causes a tissue to elongate in another direction. And this kind of transformation is the one that takes us from a ball of cells to, to an elongated embryo, which is recognisable as a, as a developing embryo. And when things work out, it's great because you have a perfectly proportioned, perfectly developed baby, but we know it doesn't always work out like that. There are some neurodevelopmental abnormalities. Is that when one of these occurs, things like spina bifida and so on, is that because the cells haven't migrated to the right place during development? That's a problem that we're very interested in in, in our lab. And we don't really know the details, but it's something to do with the, the communication within cells which enables them to collectively change shape. And in the case of neurulation, it's a sheet of cells that is trying to roll itself up into a cylinder. And that cylinder is the precursor of the spinal cord. And if this rolling process is incomplete, then the two edges are unable to fuse and the spine remains unfused and, and that is the lesion of, of spina bifida. And if we can understand through work like yours then why that goes wrong, that will potentially give us insights into how to prevent it going wrong or how to put it right when it does. We would hope that what we can find are clues as to the underlying causes, what is physically wrong with the behaviours of cells, and that would give us clues as to how we might be able to intervene in, in the future. Now, let's look at the next level of body organisation, that of tissues and organs. Last month, I attended the autumn meeting of the Genetics Society, which was called From Genes to Shape. There I met Max Heyman from Harvard Medical School, who is addressing one of the major challenges of tissue development, and he begins with that problem. So the basic question is how cells coordinate their shapes with one another to assemble large structures like tissues or organs. Our idea is that there are some general principles that will be true across all of them, and those are really what we'd like to find. To do that, we happen to be working on nerve cells and the cells that surround them in the nervous system. And we've chosen those because the cells have highly coordinated shapes that are very elaborate and are very carefully positioned with regard to one another. 
And it's obvious in that case how their shape relates to their function. The function of a nerve cell is to transmit information from one place to another, and it needs to have the right shape and make the right connections to do that. But our hope is that if we can understand how those cells come together and coordinate their shapes, it will also help us to identify general principles that we expect will hold true across all kinds of cells and all kinds of tissues. And what can we use the knowledge of those general principles for? A number of groups are interested in tissue engineering. And to engineer tissues, of course, you have to understand how they naturally assemble. And moreover, there's a number of diseases that result from failure of cells to properly assemble. Any kind of structural birth defect can be thought of as a failure of cells to properly assemble into larger structures. Take me through your work. You're looking at the development of the nervous system. How do you go about even starting looking at this enormous problem that you have to go from single cells to multicellular organisms? We're looking at a small roundworm called Cenorhabditis elegans, or C. elegans, and much of the work has been done by really giants in the field who set the stage for all of us who followed. They determined how the single cell, the single cell fertilized egg that all of us start from, in the case of C. elegans, how that single fertilized egg goes through every division to give rise to every cell of the animal. And remarkably, in this animal, it's always the same number of cells that arise through exactly the same divisions. They also cataloged the contacts that every cell makes with every other cell, which again is genetically determined in this organism, and the shapes of all the cells. So much of the hard work of cataloging how cells turn into multicellular structures has been done, and our job now is to try to understand the molecules, the genes, that determine those programs that control the assembly. And our basic approach is to take a cell that we think is interesting, for example, a single neuron, and we have ways of expressing a label, a fluorescent label, so we have that one cell glowing in an otherwise not glowing animal. These animals are small and transparent, so we can see the cells in the animals as they're crawling around. And since we can see it, we can see its shape. And then we randomly mutate the DNA, disrupting genes at random, and we look around across thousands of individual animals for ones in which the shape of that particular neuron has been changed in some way. And then we take that animal and we keep it and we grow it and we check that its progeny, its offspring, have the same defect. And then we can use genetics to identify the gene that was mutated, the gene that was disrupted. And we know that the normal function of the gene must be to give the cell its normal shape. And then comes the really hard work of understanding how that gene, what protein it encodes, and how that protein functions to generate the shape of that cell. Could you tell me a little bit about one of the genes that you've been looking at? So one of the genes we've worked on the most is one that came out of a screen just like what I described, where we had animals where we were able to visualize a single neuron in the head. It was a sensory neuron that responds to smells in the environment and allows the worms to crawl towards things that smell good to them. And the way it does that is this neuron, this nerve cell, extends a thin sensory process called the dendrite out to the nose tip where it's able to respond to the smells in the environment. And we were able to identify mutants where we disrupted a single gene that ended up causing that neuron to fail to extend to the nose tip and identified what gene it was that we disrupted. It's responsible for creating what's called an extracellular matrix, a meshwork outside of the cells. And that didn't make too much sense to us until we looked more carefully at the early development of this nerve cell. It turns out that the nerve cell is born already at the nose and attaches to this meshwork. And then the nerve cell starts crawling away from the nose and dragging out the sensory dendrite behind it, much like a spider spinning a web. 
And when you disrupt the gene, you're no longer able to make this meshwork to which the nerve cell is attached. And when the nerve cell starts crawling away from the nose tip, instead of stretching out this dendrite behind it, it drags along the process with it and ends up with a dendrite that's much too short and fails to reach the nose. So that's how this gene is able to promote the proper shape of this nerve cell. Max Heyman from Harvard Medical School. And if you'd like to hear more from the Genetic Society Autumn Meeting, you can subscribe for free to the Naked Genetics podcast from our website. This month's issue covers everything from finger formation to plant growth inside an astronaut's centrifuge. Sounds exciting. Thank you very much, Simon. You're listening to The Naked Scientist with Chris Smith and also with Simon Bishop. If you'd like to get in touch with us, the email address chris at thenakedscientist.com. You can tweet at Naked Scientists or find us on Facebook, facebook.com slash thenakedscientists. We're talking about the genetics of shape this week and how things turn from single cells and embryos into whole organisms, and now we're going to hear about how some of the more specialist parts of those organisms form, or not under certain circumstances, because Neil Vargason, who's from the University of Aberdeen, studies the problem of club foot, and he's even made an animal model of the disorder. Hello, Neil. Hi, how are you? I'm well, thank you. Tell us about club foot. What, first of all, what actually is it? Club foot is a limb defect that causes the failure of the foot to rotate correctly, and so the child is working on their ankle joint as opposed to the base of the foot, as you or I would. Why does that happen? The short answer is we don't know, but there's many ways that it's caused, bone malformations or muscle failure or, or blood vessels. We got interested because um, in Scotland, there's quite a high incidence of it. It's one in 500 births have club foot, um, can occur on one side or both sides. And we've made animal models. We have a mouse model, and I've made a chicken embryo model. And basically, we found in these particular models that it's due to neuromuscular failure. So if you block the nerve as it guides through the limbs and it fails to reach the muscles, the muscles don't form and then the muscles prevent this process called rotation occurring in the embryo, which is a process by which the forming foot uh, rotates around so that it can be walked upon. That doesn't happen so that they stay where they were as an embryo, which is sort of looking like it was an arm almost. Um, And the result is club foot. And you mentioned that the incidence is quite high in Scotland. Do you know what the genes are then? Because if there's a high incidence, there must be families with it. It is familial, um, and and there are many genes linked to it, but the ones that cause this are still unknown. And that's what we're doing. That's why we have these different models. We have chicken and mice, and the idea is is that we're going to hopefully find those genes um, that cause those particular uh, clubfoot malformations, and then that, that will hopefully give us some diagnostic or tools that we can then uh, go and identify potential families at risk. And if you look in the, in the chickens, do, do you actually have a gene that you've mutated or changed in order to make the chick or the mouse have the problem? Or was this just you got these animals by random selection? No, no. The, the chicken is, is pharmacologically induced. So it, we use a drug that blocks neuromuscular migration. Um, and, and that causes a very severe clubfoot. Um, so it's, it's almost like the... the uh, ankle joint is almost placed on the sort of the the femur if you like the upper part of the the leg and then from that we've looked at the muscles um, and the nerves and other tissues like vessels and tendons and things to understand what's going on and what the process is Um, and now we're starting to screen uh, some of the targets that we found in the mouse or the potential targets in the mouse into the chick to sort of see what they do and how they do it. Of course, one uh, disorder which is very visibly manifest in people is the disorder 
caused by the drug thalidomide, which was used in the 1950s and 1960s. Does that give us any clues? Because it produces these profound limb abnormalities in affected people, does that give us any clues as to how this problem can happen naturally? Clubfoot was seen in thalidomide embryopathy, and yes, uh, ultimately, when we've worked out the genes involved in thalidomide, that should give us some major insights into normal and abnormal limb development. So that's what we're doing. We're using thalidomide in chicken embryos to induce these limb defects and then study molecular as well as physical changes. And hopefully, if we understand the mechanisms by which thalidomide cause malformation, hopefully we'll be able to uh, understand more about normal development and why things go wrong in other conditions. But it's also quite a good drug, isn't it, thalidomide? It's still used, but not for what it was used when women were pregnant in the 50s and 60s. It's used for various disorders, leprosy and even myeloma these days. That's correct. Um, thalidomide is now used around the world as the treatment for leprosy. It's used in the UK, the US, parts of Australia and for the treatment of multiple myeloma, where it prolongs life by up to 18 months. It's also in clinical trials for things like Crohn's disease, HIV, and other inflammatory disorders. Very effective in those conditions. Sadly, in some countries, we are still seeing birth defects. I mean, particularly in Brazil, there were some stories just this year about um, a, a new generation of thalidomide survivors out there. And this is due to the drug still being teratogenic. And if it's taken at the wrong period of the formation of the embryo, you'll, you'll, you'll have a birth defect. But do we know why it's so specific for the arms and legs? and other organs and other parts of the body don't appear to be affected in the same way? The drug affects many tissues. The limbs, obviously, are the, are the ones that you see the most of because you see them on the person. But, in fact, any organ can be affected by the drug. And the majority of the survivors, they have a range of limb damage. And, of course, you could look at it and say, well, when the drug was taken, it was given to treat morning sickness. I mean, at the time that they were taking it for morning sickness, the limbs were, were, were rapidly forming and they were rapidly growing. So limbs were, no doubt, targeted at that time point. And we, we've shown that blood vessels were destroyed. Um, and if you lose the blood vessels, you induce cell death and you lose the gene expression pathways. And this results in, in a range of limb defects. So we can induce that in a chicken. But other tissues can be affected as well. Our group at the moment, we're trying to find out what targets of the drug result in these range of defects. But we're also trying to make forms of the drug that don't cause birth defect, but are still clinically relevant. Neil, thank you very much. Uh, that's Neil Vargason. He is from the University of Aberdeen. Now, we're joined still in the studio by Richard Adams from Cambridge University and on the line by Neil Vargason up in Aberdeen. Got a question here from Amanda on Twitter who asked, how do you artificially tell a stem cell to become a particular tissue or body part? Are all the instructions it needs in the DNA? Richard. The stem cells at the very beginning of development do indeed know all of the information that they need to, to make any tissue of the body. But, but driving them towards making any particular tissue can, can be done in a number of ways. You can either expose them to particular growth factors, diffusible signals that come from one cell to signal another cell to, to cause them to make a particular cell type. And you can also influence them by their physical environment. If you grow them on substrates that are stiffer or more flexible, then it changes the kind of cells that grow in culture. Now, Neil, you're looking at a later stage of development. Are these the same cues that are taking place or are there extra signals such as hormones that are involved in activating genes? In limb development, stem cells have already done their job by that point and you now have a heterogeneous population of cells, lots of different cell types coming in with lots of different signals and they're all um, are signaling towards each other, setting up signaling cascades. At the top of that would be Hox genes, for example, and then you'd also have 
signals such as sonic hedgehog and fibroblast growth factors all talking to each other. And it's that combination of how that cascade is controlled and how they signal to each other, control each other, that, that we're looking into right now. That's one of the big questions in developmental biology is how these cascades and networks are controlled. Brilliant. Now, we've got a question here from Oleg on Facebook, and he says, what decides what part of a DNA molecule is going to develop any one of the organs? So how do we avoid having a duplicate of a heart, for example? So, Richard, how is tissue-specific gene activation controlled? two basic ways. It's controlled in a positive way by specifically switching on particular genes as a response to to signals that cells are experiencing. But it's also controlled by reducing the complement of genes that are available to be switched on by silencing genes in particular places. So as cells within tissues become more and more specialised, they silence more and more of their DNA and therefore reduce the possible responses that they can have to the signal. And lastly, we've had a question from Jellysock on Twitter, who's read that all cells in the body regenerate and are replaced. But what about those in teeth and, for example, those that hold tattoos? Richard, what do you think? I don't know what happens to cells in teeth. I do know that cells in the lens of the eye, for instance, don't regenerate. We, we, we keep the same population of cells throughout our life. Tattoos, well, tattoos do, in fact, lose their resolution. They become a little blurred over time. So I think the dye that gets embedded within the tattoo gets dispersed as the cells in the dermis are replaced. They can also get dispersed when certain body parts grow. Or shrink. Uh, So Cheryl Cheryl Cole needs to be careful because uh, (laughs) her posterior, which has a rather large rose on it, could um, could shrink or or expand. Could be a chrysanthemum pretty soon. It could do, indeed. All interesting stuff. And if you have a question, of course, you can always send it anytime to chris at thenakedscientist.com. And talking of hard-to-answer questions, Hannah has been grappling with a question of some size. This week, we examine the old adage, is size important? Hello, my name's Paul Thorpe of Wigan in the northwest of England. And my question is, do smaller organisms evolve faster than large organisms? So, does a fly evolve faster than a toad? A whale slower than a barnacle? Or the plague faster than people? Over to Robert Foley, Professor of Human Evolution at Cambridge University. The short answer is yes. It's not so much that smallness makes you evolve faster, but it's what's correlated with small size that matters. Small animals, on the whole, reproduce faster than larger animals. They grow up, reach maturity, have their babies and die over a much shorter period of time. So the the number of generations that a small animal is going to be much, much greater. This means that there will be more mutations and more exposure to selection in each generation so that the potential for evolutionary change is just that much greater. Hmm, so size is important in evolution. The smaller, the better. In which case, not to sound all doom and gloom, but how have us long-living and relatively gargantian human beings managed to survive against the diddly invading bugs that are out there? Is the end of the world nigh? John Trawlsdale, Professor of Immunology at Cambridge University, reassures us. First, it must be remembered that it's not advantageous, in fact, for a microbe to kill its host. If it did that, it would then lose its livelihood. So most bugs are adapted to live in harmony with us. 
In fact, it's been calculated that we each carry around in our gut and on our skin maybe 10 times more bacteria than we have cells in our body. Second, we have many, many layers of defense, and any pathogen has to overcome all of them to gain an advantage. It's been calculated that well over 15% of the genes in our genome are involved with the immune system. Third, if an infection does take hold, there's rapid selection within the individual by the adaptive immune system. By processes of rearrangement and mutation, we each make many trillions of different antibodies, and the best are selected out each time to respond to a specific infection. And finally, there is great variation in the immune systems of different individuals. This is to our advantage, as if a virus mutates to overcome the defences of an individual, other people will be resistant, so spread of the infection is limited. Thanks, Paul, Robert and John. Smaller organisms evolve faster, but our large bodies have clever immune systems evolved that help keep us humans one step ahead and bugs at bay. Next, we get ourselves in a bit of a tiz, trying to answer this. Hello, my name is John and I live in Melbourne, Australia. My question is, are electrons orbiting atoms? I've always wondered how come electrons seem to perpetually spin around a nucleus. What forces are involved and how come friction doesn't play a part in stopping their movement? Thanks, guys. So you might remember from school that electrons whiz around the centre of your atoms. But what keeps them whizzing? Don't they ever get tired? What do you think? And if you know the answer to our question of the week and you can help Hannah out, then please send it to chris at thenakedscientists.com. You can also tweet at Naked Scientists or you can join us on our forum, nakedscientists.com slash forum. There's a special board there on the forum devoted to question of the week where you can see what everyone else thinks and what their arguments are. That's it for this week. Better tell you the answer to the teaser. We asked you if you took one of your average cells and you took the DNA out of it and stretched it out into one long line, how long would it be? It would be about two metres in length. Pretty extraordinary to think that you can wind up something that's two metres in length into a nucleus, which is just a few microns across. And if you were to scale that nucleus up and look at it as if it were the size of a mini, that DNA would actually extend for 150 miles. That's about the same as Birmingham to Southend-on-Sea. What an awesome statistic. I mean, if you think about the fact that there are a couple of hundred trillion cells in the body, give or take, and if each of those has got two metres of DNA, say it's 100 trillion cells, that's 200 trillion metres of DNA, well, that's 2 times 10 to the 14 metres, isn't it? So if you turn that into kilometres, that's 2 times 10 to the 11 kilometres. How far is it to the sun? Well, it's couple of hundred million kilometres to the sun. So if you divide your 2 times 10 to the 11 by 2 times 10 to the 8, then that means you could go to the sun and back 500 times on just the DNA in your cells. An awesome thought. Thank you very much to our guests, Sam Mayer, also Helen Matthews, Richard Adams, Max Hyman and Neil Vargason. Thank you to Simon Bishop for joining me and to the Advent Chamber Orchestra for playing us Mozart's Eine Kleine Nachtmusik earlier in the show. The production this week was by Dominic Ford and next week, join us for our Christmas special. We're actually combining the office party with the Naked Scientist last show before Christmas from my kitchen. Join us for a very exciting and potentially explosive broadcast and in the meantime, goodbye.